that we just heard about in the sermonette wiping my eyes all the time because I get all slobbery and emotional when some of these American champions come through and win the race. I don't know if the rest of you are like that or not, but I guess I'm just an old patriot at heart. But I see Americans uh, whipping up on some of these other nations in swimming or some of the sports, uh, the various races and so on. I get awfully excited about it. So Ian stole part of my subject and one of my scriptures, but that's all right. Great minds must run in the same channels, Ian. I got to thinking about that because over the years I have been taught and been told that all of this is vanity. I've heard that scripture repeated endlessly for decades. All is vanity. I've gone to basketball games with other people, uh, one person in particular I shall not identify, and after I'd enjoyed a rousing basketball game and my favorite team had won, I was told on the way home, well, it was enjoyable for a little while, but you know, it's gone so soon and just leaves an empty feeling, and now what? And that took away a little bit of the joy of a successful basketball game. I have been taught from the following scripture. I want to turn to Job 42 and verse 6, and I know all of the rest of you have as well. As a matter of fact, I have preached from this scripture, and I've talked on the radio program, I suppose, for thousands of hours about human nature. Now, as you're turning there, let me ask, first of all, where does human nature come from? I have said for many years that human nature is a collection of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. But I've got to add that there are some very good things about human nature as well. Otherwise, I cannot explain neighbor helping neighbor in a time of fire, hurricane, drought, or famine, or financial disaster. I can't explain people who have literally laid down their lives for others, servicemen in the military who have thrown their bodies on a live grenade to save their fellows standing there, moments of great heroism, of great bravery, of great sacrifice. I can't explain that if all human nature is, is evil. And if everything inside of every single one of these young athletes we see, triumphant, tearful, proud beyond their ability to express it in the success of not only winning perhaps a national crown, but an international one against many, many nations in competition. Is all of that just vanity? Is it wrong for me, as I'm sure other members of other churches, any church you want to think about at the moment, are probably sitting there enjoying the very same television. And that's something to think about too, isn't it? A lot of people that are estranged for various reasons have the same appetites, enjoy the same entertainment, go to the same pictures, read the same books, react the same to the same news, read the same scriptures, go to church on the same day, believe 99 and 4400% of the Bible exactly the same, and yet they're estranged for some sort of weird reasons. But is everything that is in the sweetest little baby, all of us, and I'm probably a year away from that now, but we, a lot of you people, I was just talking to Grandpa Reese out there, uh, you will bore us to death if we let you by whipping your wallet out and showing us the pictures of all your grandchildren. Now, when a little sweet baby is born, if you're like any other parent or grandparent, what is the very first thing you do? Well, you know what it is. You count digits. You check the plumbing. 
you look and see if there are five fingers, five toes, and you want to know whether it's a boy or a girl. When my two younger were born, I could tell when it was about two-thirds over because uh, I was watching and sort of, I wasn't assisting exactly. I was holding Cheryl's hand, but I got to see the birth, so I knew immediately it's a boy. Of course, I get all choked up. We wanted a girl, but, you know, when he's there and, and uh, he's beautiful and everything is in position, when a little baby is born and it takes its very first breath, does it breathe in something that comes from the devil? Is that true? And can you prove it? And is there scripture to back it up? The analogy that I've been taught for many years is that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that Satan is the god of this world, and that Satan allegedly, this is merely an analogy, broadcasts through, I guess, some sort of wavelengths, and the analogy has been drawn in exactly the same way that right now this room is filled with AM and FM and VHF and UHF and LF and MF and every other kind of wavelength from radio, television, uh, from ships at sea and aircraft overhead. And if you had receivers that could tune into those various frequencies, you could actually prove that right inside this room right now with a little antenna, uh, are all sorts of wavelengths that this human ear cannot pick up. And that allegedly Satan is broadcasting, emitting, as it were, from wherever his central station is, uh, chicanery and cheating and lying and stealing and vanity and ego and selfishness and hatred and rancor and cunning and all of these evil appetites of human nature sensuality, uh, voyeurism, uh, libidinous uh, desires, etc., and that it's all just sort of pummeling your body or somehow uh, absorbed into your body. If you follow that to its natural consequences, that's kind of an ugly thought, that a sweet little innocent baby, the instant it takes its first breath, is supposed to be imbued with the spirit of the devil. And parents sometimes talk about, I'm going to beat the devil out of this little kid. And I guess some of them go to work try to do that. I remember one fellow that I had to go down and actually just scold him like a child. I probably should have had him arrested and taken him to jail, but he was whipping his child with a metal coat hanger because he'd been told that you got to really conquer your children. And he'd grown up breaking wild horses. And he thought the way to break a horse, of course, was with a leather strap. Well, every time his child, he told his child, shut up. child didn't shut up, so he hit him. thought that's the way to get him to shut up. Well, he didn't know that that's the way to get him to make more noise. And every time a child would cry louder, he'd hit him harder. Well, here's a little child with little ugly brew of blue and black and red bleeding welts all over his body. And uh, I'm called down there to pray for the child. I wanted to beat the daylights out of the father, but, you know, I didn't dare do that. Didn't know what was going on until I got there. Now, there's another brand new doctrine. I'm not going to go off and go afield in this. Some of you have heard this rumor, but it is true, so I'm going to report it, that allegedly the doctrine has now been taught officially to the parent organization that the spirit in man, now we're talking about a spiritual essence which united with the human brain, gives us mind as opposed to mere brain of animals and instinct. And I, I go along with that because the Bible does say, quote, there is a spirit in man. 
And it says, His Spirit witnesseth with our spirit that we are the children of God. And even by analogy, you can see the human birth is only possible by the uniting of the male sperm cell, a spermatozoon, with the female ovum, and both are living cells. One is not dead or inert and the other alive. So that God's Holy Spirit, in making a new creation in Christ Jesus, I think it is logical, unites with something that is living spirit, or spiritual, rather than mere matter. Your brain is only matter. But if there's almost like an electrical field, if you want to call it that, and there really is, you know, kinetic energy extends out away from us, and they can take oral and spectral type of photography and actually show that heat and electrical fields do emanate from the human brain and the human body. There is a vast unknown science there that has barely been tapped as to why sometimes in the dark you can stop and then reach out and feel a wall or a door that you somehow sensed and you knew was there in spite of the fact it was absolutely pitch black. And various psychosomatic relationships and communication between twins and why a wife knows her husband was killed 6,000 miles away and sits up in bed and cries out at the very instant that he dies in the war, they don't know. But there are things there that we cannot explain. There is something spiritual to the human mind that is different than human brain. But that isn't what I was going to mention. What I was going to mention is that the new doctrine that has been espoused is that the spirit in man is transmitted to every little baby through the male sperm cell. Now that boggles my mind, uh, of course it does, with regard to what happens to all of the others, because there are millions in any given moment, and I won't go into the clinical uh, necessities here to uh, either bore or shame anyone or surprise anyone. Is that doctrine, then, that bases itself upon Job 42 and verse 6, and Jeremiah 17 and 9, and a couple of other scriptures I will read, really correct. I can see how a, a so-called, well, not they're not calling them multiple murders or mass murderers now, but serial murders, murderers who, who murder people just willy-nilly in state after state. There's a guy now on trial, I've forgotten his name, who allegedly has killed something more than 200 people. There was an idiot the other day that went into a McDonald's restaurant down in San Diego and just started killing everyone in sight. Men, women, babies, everybody. And you can't understand a mind like that. The wife was calling a mental hospital to see if he'd check to check himself in. He had threatened, I'm going to go kill somebody. The man was crazy. And the mental authorities of the county had actually had him call them. And the wife had called them. But they did nothing. And so now mayhem and bloody, wretched slaughter occurs. And... Everybody tries to clean up the mess and wonder what in the world happened, why did he do it, what made him tick. And we have special interviews on television where they go into death row and they talk to these convicted killers and want to find out what makes them tick. And I've had a little bit of that because I've sat down and talked to a young black woman who stabbed to death her own three children with a butcher knife. And all she could do was complain about the food in the prison. And it was very terrible and she's being mistreated where she was. So you can tell a few stories like that. And you can agree with me that there are some pretty filthy, wretched, uh, lousy human beings out here who do not deserve to live. When I was up in Akron, there was a notice in the paper, newspaper article, of a young woman who showed her picture with dark glasses. She'd just come out of the hospital. She'd been raped with a knife. And she had been stabbed by her attacker in both eyes. 
and blinded. They arrested him. He's got a good lawyer. He was being held in jail. But as I related the subject, I asked, and it was written up in the newspaper the following day, why has that guy still got his eyesight? Now, they didn't understand what I meant by that. But that made me almost vomit when I read that article. I mean, that is the sickest act. Now, if I think of things like that, then I read this scripture, Job 42. He said, I have heard of you before, now I really see you. Wherefore, verse 6, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Usually, when I would get to that scripture, talking about human nature, I had already read Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, and so let's turn to that one. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. You know, when you think of some of these horrible actions of human beings, you think of the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the Khomeinis of the world, mass murderers, egotistical, demonic, mystic leaders of nations who are actually able to somehow vicariously subject the entire mental consciousness of a nation and wield and mold the frustrations of millions of individuals and channel those frustrations into a national socialist program that actually calls the military spirit that latently lives in the hearts of the German people, as a matter of fact, and the history and the Bible and history both prove that, and actually cause a nation to soak and drench the world in blood, I've never been able to cope with it except to say, well, he was totally demon-possessed, or perhaps Satan the devil in person was influencing the mind of Adolf Hitler. I can't understand an Auschwitz or a Belsen or a Birkenau or Buchenwald or some of these torture camps and what happened in the war. It says in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart, talking about the human heart, or that part of the mind, which is volition, or our conscience, the, the decision-making factor, is deceitful above all things. It's wily and hypocritical and evil and deceitful. Oh, yes, it is. It can be. And desperately wicked, and we're reading the Word of God, and I'm not disagreeing with it. But there is balance, and there are other scriptures that are also the Word of God we must understand in context in the light of these scriptures. Desperately sick, says the margin, almost like it is afflicted. Who can know it? God answers, I can. I, the eternal, search the heart. I try the reins. Now that's an analogy. That's like a horseman driving a wagon that pulls to see whether the horse is going to be obedient and stop or turn left or right or back up. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So, if we go back to the little baby that is so perfect when it is born, that is so sweet to its parents and so cuddly, and we can teach the little creature, it takes months, not to mess on itself, not to do those things in public, that there are some things, as we learn on up in life, on through the first six, seven, eight grades, that we uh, really shouldn't pick our nose, dig our ears, or even pick our teeth uh, too vociferously, energetically, or, uh, you know, out and out in the open, among other people. 
And it takes a while to take we sweet little babies, all of us are ex-sweet little babies, we must have looked awfully darling when we were first born, in spite of what we might appear to each other to be today. But when we were first born, I imagine even Mrs. Adolf Hitler thought that little baby was the sweetest thing she'd ever seen. Little Adolf, Eich, mein Lieber, das ist gut, and so on, probably kissed him and fondled his little feet, powdered his little bottom, and here was a monster that was going to develop into a mass murderer to take the lives of probably something like 70 million human beings eventually. So we were all little babies once, and when we were born, did we literally drink in, on the one hand, with our lungs, or the mind, or something, the spirit of the devil, and did we inherit through the sperm cell of our father the spirit of God? Now that boggles my mind. It leaves me hanging in limbo, wondering what part the mother had to do with all of this. Wondering about Adam not having had the benefit of being brought into the world via the normal cycle of life. And Eve also, who was denied that same benefit and was not the result of human spermatozoa, but Adam's rib. So I immediately have a problem with what has become an official doctrine in the Worldwide Church of God. Now you can see why I have the problem. There is self-satisfaction. I will not go into all of this. There are whorehouses in the world and houses of prostitution. And there are situations where in the course of the life of one man, more than the population of the present world, can be created, expended, and die. And if that is somehow manufacturing little spirits, and spirit is according to any definition that I've ever seen in the Bible, the Word of God, eternal, and cannot be really destroyed. Spirit is not necessarily just brought into being, is it? I, I don't... This sort of boggles my mind. Well, I'm just informing you because, frankly, it's a false doctrine, not a bit of truth in it. There's not a bit of truth in the idea that when a person first draws breath, they draw in or they imbibe a part of the nature of the devil. I'll tell you why. Because when Adam was there, finished, looking like the greatest sculpture that Michelangelo could ever have said, it is finished or it is done over, he was a clay model, and God Almighty, this is the one who became Jesus Christ, the God that we read of in the Bible, who was the Father God, apparently, or they would, we think of that, but really he was just the eternal Elohim, and the one of whom we heard in the song, I Am, who appeared to Moses, and Israelites is the one who became Jesus Christ. Well, he's also the creator. And just like you might see a paramedic grab a person and put his mouth over his and just breathe and just pump into the bellows that are the lungs, his own lung full of air, so it says in the Bible that God Almighty knelt down and took the mouth of his finished clay model and breathed into, well, his nostrils, didn't he? Breathed into his nostrils, it said, not the mouth, the breath of life, and Adam became, through that activity, through that agency, at that moment, a living soul, or a living ruach in the Hebrew, nephesh, I should say is a better word, ruach is spirit, nephesh is soul, a living creature, or an, a living being. Could it be conceivable that at the side of the mouth of the Lord from heaven, or somehow mixed with it, in the very lungs of the being who became Jesus Christ, there was some element of the devil. 
These doctrines have not been thought through very carefully. No, it could not be. Neither do I believe and neither is it true that at the instant of birth your sweet little babies have one iota of the spirit of the devil in their minds. I do believe that through human nature, which is not only vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed, but also magnanimous and selfless and gentle and kind and considerate, and sometimes a lot of other wonderful qualities that come, come out of a person that's supposed to be carnal. How can you understand a man who up there in what they call the Eagle's Eyrie or uh, the place up in the mountains where I believe it was, uh, I've forgotten the name of the guy that they took the Israeli intelligence got from Argentina, Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was there and he was visiting Hitler and Hitler gave him the order to go ahead and start the final solution by executing all the Jews and then he turned and he petted his favorite dog and he noticed that his favorite German shepherd was a little bit too thin I think her, I, maybe the name was Gerda or whatever and he says, ah, you know, I've got to take better care of my dog and here is this arch criminal has just tossed off an order to exterminate millions of human beings that have been taken from the ghettos of Warsaw and Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia and Poland and Germany and so on and is very concerned about the health of his dog. Now you've got to deal with that in your mind. You've got to deal with his unusual affection toward Eva Brown, toward the alleged infirmity that he had, the mother fixation, the other problems that were in his mind. Someone once said there's a little good in the best of, there's a little good in the worst of us and a little bad in the best of us. And probably that's awfully close to the truth. Just like there is probably a discernible flaw or two in the Mona Lisa, and like there's probably one wrong note in the greatest concerto that has ever been recorded, and like there might have been, though I couldn't have seen it, one little flaw in the final vault of the American women's gold medal winner uh, yesterday evening in the Olympics. I didn't see it when they played it in extreme slow motion. That was the most perfect vault I've ever seen in my life to see a human body hit that thing, actually doing a part of a split ass like an airplane to hit the vault, go up, her body absolutely straight, even the toes together like this, stayed exactly that way, did a complete one and a half, landed on a dime, never moved once and stood there, arched her back. I, I just absolutely just took tears out of my eyes when I watched that. Absolutely beautiful. Maybe there was a flaw in it, but they thought it was a perfect ten. But maybe there is a little bit of good in the very worst, and maybe there is some bad in the very best, with one exception in history that we know of, and that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, where there was no bad whatsoever. Those are total false doctrines, and yet these scriptures are in the Bible and must be dealt with. Why did Job say, I abhor myself. Isn't it interesting that in the final chapters of the book of Job, God, I won't go back and read that, sort of chews out, gives the back of his hand to all of the other protagonists, the antagonists rather, who sat there and argued with Job. And he said of them, in spite of the fact that I've heard their words quoted out of sermons about as often as I've heard Job's words quoted, Thou hast not spoken truly of me as my servant Job has. Job had self-righteousness, yes. But everything else about him, his honesty, his integrity, his thrift, his work, 
the, the, probably the way he'd handle his body, his, his self-esteem, and everything else that he had was good quality. The man was good through and through. He was a good man. But the trouble was he knew it just to a heightened degree a little too much. It would have been better for him on balance if he hadn't have known he was quite that good. He really thought he was better than he was. He made himself almost as good as God. And he was, in fact, the most righteous man who walked the earth at that time. And the one thing that was lacking was humility. It's like some of our black athletes in the Mexico City Olympics, who when they stood on the dais there and had the national anthem raise their arm in a black power salute, and it ruined the whole thing. That was many years ago. Or like the one young man, I think, who won a medal in swimming, but had promised himself and made a statement publicly to the press that he was going to break the world record, didn't do that, but still won the gold and could only wave like this and put his head down. And then, of course, the press went after him and he had to apologize. Yeah, there can be a little bad in the best of us. But, you know, Job, even though he had self-righteousness, was nevertheless a righteous man. Don't forget that. Let's go to Romans 7 again. And notice something in that about the Apostle Paul's example. 1 Corinthians 9, I was going to use, I might refer to a part of that again, since it was referred to in the sermonette, as well it should have been. Romans, the 7th chapter, and verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Question. Did Paul abhor himself? Did Paul go around saying, I am the most wretched man in the world? Was that his constant norm to the point that Paul was the most, you know, obvious, self-deprecating, uh, uh, most unprepossessing, self-hating, self-contemptuous human being you ever met? You tend to get that impression. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For that which I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. And I'll paraphrase it as I go along. If I do that which I wish I wouldn't, then I have to acknowledge that the law is good. Now then, it's no more I that do it, but sin that lives in me. Now that is a figure of speech. Sin is not a human being. Sin is not amoeba. It's not a dysentery. It's not some kind of a disease. It isn't another human being. It's not a, a, a parasitic thing. So by analogy, he is showing that sin lives or dwells, abides inside a human mind. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. How do you understand that? Was it good that he wrote those words? Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired it. Was it good that he wrote to the Roman church? Yes. Was it good when he instructed Timothy patiently? Was it good for him to take the sword they handed him in the Ephesus arena was cheering thousands of, of pagans and fight the animals one by one or two by four, whatever they, they threw at him? I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Well, yes, that was good. Was it good that he dwelt with tent makers and worked with his own hand? Was it good, every sacrifice, everything that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter, 
He gave his body to be beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was robbed. He, he went through every ordeal you can imagine. Was Paul, or was he not, a good man? Now, on the other hand, remember what he said. I suppose I was not a whit behind the cheapest apostles. And yet he said, In me and my flesh dwelleth no good thing. You know, you might want to disagree with Paul a little bit, but this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. What you need to understand is the context. And in the form of speech, the manner of speaking in which the Apostle Paul is now using powerful psychology on the Roman church, who is guilty of every kind of gross sin and uh, evil and so on that you can imagine, needs his instruction. He is showing, I am a man with feet of clay just like you. I understand the pulls and tugs of human nature. I have a hard time fighting myself. He's saying to them, I'm nobody great. He's saying, don't worship me. Worship Christ. And that's what he's really getting at. The good that I wish I could do, verse 19, I don't do. But the evil that I wish I wouldn't do, well, I find myself doing it. Now, if I do that which I wish I didn't, it's no more I that do it. He's talking here about culpability but sin that lives in me. He is making it an impersonal thing so it can help us understand why. It's easy to hate sin. You can characterize sin. But it's not that easy to hate yourself. And do you see him separating the two? He is saying it is no more I that do it and he's dealing with culpability. He's dealing with responsibility. He's dealing with who is really doing this? When you see someone like an apostle, the Apostle Paul, doing things that are base, that are ugly, that are evil or wrong, somehow mistreating people, whatever it is he did that he's ashamed of, we don't know. Thankfully, God isn't going to let us know either because it's none of our business. It was between Paul and God. But Paul felt badly about it. But it's interesting that the Bible lets us have this as understanding so that we can not have to hate ourselves, but we can characterize sin in the flesh and see, as Paul says, I find that it is a law that when I want to do good, verse 21, evil is right there with me. I delight in the law of God inwardly. And don't you, too, when you read the Ten Commandments, don't you say how righteous, how wonderful, how great is that law? Can't you say, isn't it marvelous that God gave us his law and yet find yourself in various little ways breaking it? So can't you understand that it's not you that is always doing it on purpose, but that it is a pull or a tug or an emotion or an oversight or a slip-up characterized as sin which dwells parasitically in your members, and that's only an analogy or a form of speech. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, my members, my hands and feet, my arms and my legs, my ears, my eyes, my sense of taste and touch and sound and feel, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body? of this death. Now the King James English unfortunately does not give you the beauty of what he next says. Other translations do. And it should read this way. He asks the question, who will deliver me? Who will solve this problem? Sin is waging its war within me. God's 
law is what I love, what I want, all the righteousness of God is what I want to accomplish. And he answers when he asks, who will deliver me? I thank God it has been done through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then now, my daily way of life is, with the mind, me, with my intent and my heart and my purpose, I myself serve the law of God. That's me. But with the flesh, that thing that, that attacks me, the law of sin. Is that a man who hates himself? Or a man who is capable of the most, I think, almost incomprehensible self-analysis. Beautiful self-analysis. To be able to separate it out and to show that there is a fleshly law like gravity, like inertia, like the laws of chemics or chemistry and physics that is pulling at him and saying, but I myself am not guilty. I'm fighting it, and God knows the innermost me. Remember what we read in Jeremiah 17.9? The real riches of that scripture have never been drunk by the church, because God answers the question. You don't just ask the question and then create between yourself and your audience, especially God's own flock, God's people, of whom God says through the prophets, with harshness and with cruelty have you ruled them, to some of the pastors and prophets of today. You do not create between yourself and your own beloved brethren, if I might add, your supporters, an adversary relationship where you continually tell them they're dumb and they're stupid and they don't get it. Why don't you understand it? And you're never going to make it. And you're carnal and so on until you feel at the end of one of these sessions, as I have many, many times, not just from one preacher, but from several different ones, as if there is no hope for me whatsoever. And you feel, unless you could hate yourself as much as that man hates himself, there's no, no real good about you. So the way to the kingdom of God is abhorrence of self, Acknowledgement you're nothing but the lowest form of life that could be found underneath the stuff they put underneath the garbage can. That you belong in the lowest dungeon to which they'd have to pipe sunshine for the next decade and a half. That you're worse than slime, worse than a worm, worse than a slug, worse than a gopher or a mole in the ground. And that you have no dignity and you do not have the right to walk erect, to be proud of an accomplishment. What is there about another human being that attracts you? Well, if I see an ad, which one is it? There's an ad right now. My wife and I both agree. It's a beautiful girl. And that's as far as it goes. It just I, I admire uh, beauty. I can make the same comment about men to my wife when I saw some of these swimmers. And I look at these incredible young men with these big chests and stomachs like a washboard and, and tremendous arms and these tremendous bodies that are developed out of all that exercise... And, you know, you almost get a little bit envious, and I try to keep myself in reasonable shape, but I'll guarantee I don't look like that. What is it that attracts? Why do we say women are beautiful, or they are attractive, or a woman is a handsome woman, or a man is a handsome man, or attractive, or whatever? It's the hair, it's the eyes, it's the face, it's the quality and texture of the skin, it's the face, of the, the shape of the physique, it is the physical conditioning. There's one of these soft drink ads that shows this girl loping along a beach right now in slow motion. These two guys are coming the other way. I don't know what in the world it takes them so long to turn around for. Most incredible thing you've ever seen. And it takes them about 14 more steps before they turn around and realize that girl went by. 
But that has got to be one of the most all-time beautiful female human bodies you've ever seen in your life. And she didn't get it drinking Mr. Pibbs or whatever it is they're trying to advertise. I guarantee you that. You know, you know better than that. Anybody does. It's interesting to me that the commercials have the profound messages. You could take commercial after commercial after commercial of what they say about life and preach a sermon from them. And really, some of the uh, of the acting and the music and all of the uh, emotion they put into some of them are fantastic. What is it that attracts you to another human being beyond looks? Why do you say someone is really a great guy or she's a fine woman? I'm talking about people you know in the world, quote unquote, because people have a nature, they have an attitude about them, an aura. They can be jolly, and they can be pleasant, and they can have be, so, as we say, full of a business. They can come up with a cute little quip. They can be an attractive personality. Now, we know people can be like an ugly old prune. Now, we can say that, that, that some people are poor, so they can't afford, you know, but I've always said that in the United States, water is basically still free. Maybe in some places they ration it, and it costs money. So I've always figured that an American could at least keep clean, no matter what his situation is, that... Poor doesn't mean dirty. I've never accepted that excuse. And I've always felt that it's not necessarily vanity to dress appropriate to an occasion. So if they tell us we're going to have a costume party over at Guntersville and dress in the 50s style, I might not be able to have enough room in my suitcase for my leather jacket, the one that says sick on the back of it. But uh, <laughs> if, if I do, I'll take it along. <laughs> Guy Carnes remembers what that was because we saw a guy in New Orleans that had that kind of leather jacket, did a 50s act, and turned around. It said sick on the back, and we like to fell out when we saw that. But uh, I would like to dress appropriate to the occasion. My dad always emphasized proper dress. Maybe he overemphasized it. Uh, some people could accuse, I guess, and say that. But if I knew that the governor of Texas was going to be down here at the hall, you know, and I was invited and so on, I'd probably want to want to dress up about as well as I would uh, under any of the normal occasions. I probably would not go down there in the same clothes I just came off the mountain with the other day, my old boots and, and jeans, and I was backpacking up here, and I looked like something that they had dragged out of the sewer, I guess, by the time I got off that mountain. I would probably dress up and wear a tie. If I was going to go to a costume ball, I'd probably want to wear a costume. And it seems to me the Bible says something about that. Is that vanity? Look at that person. He's wearing his tie. He has to be all dressed up all the time. I had a comment by a guy I golf with. He said, have you ever seen Ted when he didn't look dressed up? And I'm in my golf shorts. But I just try to make sure the socks and the hat match. You know, that's all. But a lot of people don't. They'll go out in the golf course. they got golf shorts on. And then they got the kind of socks I'm wearing. I'll pull up my pants and show you, but I'm wearing calf-length hose. That's the dumbest-looking thing I've ever seen in the golf course for a grown man. Unless he's got very close veins trying to hold, you know, his veins in. But uh, it looks crazy for a person, for example, to have, like I've seen many people even come to church, that would have a, a blue check coat with maybe a, a purple check tie and maybe a striped yellow shirt. I mean, maybe wearing red socks. I mean, you can just get the weirdest combination you've ever imagined. I don't think it is vanity to dress up. I don't even think it's vanity to try to move your body through life gracefully. Many people never learn how to walk. 
They don't learn how to be gracious or graceful even in the way they conduct themselves. I would imagine if you were in a building and you were with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you were there to see him, and you watched the way he walked, how do you think he'd walk? Would he look like a lumberjack whose cock boots were sticking in the cedar every step and jerking them free of the ground, you know, and kind of loping along like an old clodhopper? What would he look like? Gangly? Awkward? Like he's rolling from side to side, been at sea for the last 40 years, and just got off the ship? How do you think Christ would have moved from place to place? I think with the very least effort, I think everything would have been direct, no waste motion. Uh, I imagine no flare, no put on. He wouldn't priss or prance like some people do in San Francisco. And you've got to pronounce the S with a special lisp now, like they do Castilian French, because that's the Sodom of America. A logical place for the Democratic National Convention, I think, especially if you recall Jesse Jackson's speech. I mean, if you're going to have a little bit for everybody and get all these people all together, I don't know how all those queers and lesbians are going to get along together with some of the people that uh, espouse every other conceivable weird idea in the United States, but they seem to be able to find some common cause. But what is it that attracts us to another human being? Is it wrong to be a kind of a person who wants to look your best? And now I'm going to touch on a little subject called makeup. I won't say a lot about it. Except to say that if you want the real truth about that, we've got the original, exactly what my father wrote, his own signature on it. If that means anything to you, don't know why it would, one way or the other. But the point is that in the Word of God, there is ample evidence, even in the Garden of Eden, when God put Adam and Eve in there, he put them in that garden with a lot of raw material, but he put them in there to dress it and to keep it. It is not wrong to manicure grass. It is not wrong to prune and clip trees. It is not wrong to groom your lawn and your shrubs any more than it is wrong to clip and to prune and to pluck and to groom human hair. There's nothing holy about human hair. I have to confess that if I allowed everything growing out of my nose to appear before you, I could put little red ribbons in it and be down to here. I'm not going to do it because there's nothing holy about that hair. When I, I hate to have barbers do it. I don't like a barber to take a finger and push it here and then go clipping around like some of them will. I take care of that before I get to the barber shop. Likewise, my ears. As I get older, I'm like a lot of other people. I don't know where the hair comes from after 50, but I look in my ears and I'm suddenly growing little tufts. It could be white, you know, it'd be sticking out like this. And so I take these little bitty scissors and I get the magnifying mirror that my wife has and I go after all of that stuff. I don't think there's any law in the Bible that says to me, that if I go bald and I decide that it will, you know, blind you in the sun or whatever, and I decide to wear a hairpiece, that that is vanity. Now, some hairpieces are vanity. The ones where a person is making an absolute, all-out attempt to the best of his ability and to the best of his wallet to make it appear like it's his own hair where you'd never guess he's wearing a hairpiece, I applaud it. That's great, especially for women. There are about as many women bald as there are men. A lot of people don't know that. Many hundreds of thousands, maybe it's a few million, American women wear wigs. I know a church which would forbid that. I don't understand why there is a church which would not forbid hair pieces for men, some of which look like something they just got off the floor from the poodle shampoo shop and just pasted on their pate. And it goes in every direction with interesting little waves that were never there in their boyhood. But there they are. But their wives have not, cannot groom 
And as a matter of fact, I've been told any woman that plucks her eyebrows will never be in the kingdom of God. What if they grow straight across? What if they're bushy completely across the front of your nose? It doesn't look good. I mean, God made, basically, I guess so the sweat would have a place to escape eventually, other than on the side. We don't have, basically, all of us, eyebrows, right? Benny Sharp does, but it's all. He's, uh, Benny and I have talked about that. He doesn't mind. He's not going to pluck his out, and uh, he doesn't worry about it. It just makes, him, makes his kids afraid of him more. He can frown. Uh, darker frown than a lot of other people can, but... Uh, I'm not going to, to say that just because a woman wants eyebrows that are arched and that will actually enhance her eyes. Now, an eye, a human eye, is a beautiful part of our feature, uh, the features. It, it, it is called the mirror of the soul. I remember one girl, one of the most beautiful girls that I've ever seen. And my wife and I knew her and the young man that she married eventually. Not well, but we'd seen him once in a great while. We'd go up to summer camp. And she had one beautiful blue eye and one beautiful brown eye. And it was a striking-looking thing. You know what she did? She used a lot of heavy eye shadow, and you almost never noticed it, especially in an evening. And she'd be up there at Nelson's in the uh, restaurant when we would see her once in a while. Her family came up there and, I guess, lived nearby there, forgotten her name. She got married and, I guess, later divorced. But she literally was a beautiful girl, but she had a blue eye and a brown eye. Was it wrong for her, through makeup, to try to at least take away from that so it wasn't so glaring? When you looked at her, you mean, oh, there's a blue eye and a brown eye. What a, which, which, hi, brown eye, uh, hello, blue eye. You gotta, uh, how are you going to deal with this? A woman with both colors. Well, a lot of people make up a lot of rules, and I'm not really certain is in the mind of God at all about the way we ought to walk and talk and act and dress and move through life and label practically everything we do vanity if we try to excel in music. I remember that it was once made as an edict, and I assume it's still in place, that all acting, if you throw yourself into a different role so that you would, say, put on a play, is absolutely out, it is ungodly, it is vanity, and it will never be allowed in God's church or in God's college. I can't quite cope with that when I see the Apostle Paul saying, act like I do, as I act like Christ. The word is mime, mimic, or imitate. Be thou an imitator of me, imitate me, mimic me, even as I imitate Christ. Mimics are fun. I mean, I uh, can't think of this one guy who's probably the best it's ever been, but he does everybody. He, he, he does an incredible mixin'. He does a very good Reagan. He does all the actors, does everybody else. Rich Little, Rich Little. Absolutely delightful. If you've ever watched a whole rich little show where he just goes from one to the other, he does a Jimmy Stewart so good that if you weren't looking at him, you would absolutely, you would never know, if you're just recording it, who you're listening to. It is an excellent imitation of Jimmy Stewart. How are you going to go through life when you realize that you learn by imitating and the children learn by 
even subconsciously imitating their parents and their teachers and other influential personalities around them more than they do just by getting it out of a book. That's the most important way we learn the English language. Where does accent come from? Where do colloquialisms come from? Where do certain manners of dress and even the movement of human bodies, where does it come from in certain families that three and four generations are athletes? or three or four generations are army officers, or three or four generations are scientists or doctors. If people do not want to mimic and imitate and almost unconsciously imitate the role, we talk about role models now, you know, as parents, husband and wife and so on are for the children coming up. Is that against the law of God? Is it against the law of God for these athletes to do what they do? Run, to go through grueling self-denial for a so-called temporary crown. I remember also another misplaced emphasis. It says, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that exercise, bodily exercise, profits little. And that was heavily emphasized in the church. It profits only little, but godliness and righteousness and so on. No, what he was really saying, if you read it out of the Diaglot, to get another translation is, Bodily exercise does profit for a while. You bet it does. But, of course, you've got to keep it up, haven't you? It was, it was a positive statement. It was not a negative statement. It wasn't saying, therefore, don't do it. It was saying, of course, the exercise you get today is not sufficient for all the week. You're probably going to want to do it again tomorrow or the next day. You need to exercise. I deplore when I see little, little kids that, that big, that tall, and their parents are there. I look at the little, little kid and I think, that poor child is going to go through life absolutely miserable, unhealthy. You know, you look at what the parents have done to themselves and so on, and, and you realize this kid is just going to be miserable because the parents are not going to train that child so that that child will go through life fulfilling its dreams in athletics or sports or other things. And you can realize the die is already cast. But on the other hand, when I see a family where I say, now that's good breeding there. There is a group that are conscious of themselves. They take care of themselves. They dress as well as they possibly can according to their wallet. They're neat and clean about themselves. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not speaking Greek. You analyze people in exactly the same way I do. When you see somebody, you see the whole person. You know whether somebody is neat and trim or whether they're slovenly or sloppy, whether they're dirty or clean, whether they're wearing color-coded and matched clothing or something that doesn't go together. And is that vanity if someone is conscious of that and wants to look their best? Now, perfect self, I have, again, this is my own idea, so you don't need to believe it, is made up of self-preservation, which is almost like an instinct in we human beings, that's number one, self-determination, wanting to be our own boss, our own ruler, make our own path in life, chart our own course, and self-perpetuation, that is, to preserve ourselves as long as we possibly can. Over in 1 Corinthians 9, where Ian was reading before, I want to just get another little bit of that and then contrast that with another scripture so that we get the balance of the entire subject. 1 Corinthians 9, and let's begin up in verse 24. He was referring to the Olympics. Know you not that they which run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Some of them, of course, lose out. So I run, he said, a little later on, verse 26, not as uncertainly. I fight, he's showing it's a battle. Now, I've got to ask you this question in passing. 
I've also also been told that the word competition is wrong, that the world is filled with competition and strife. I have to ask this question. Is competition wrong? Is what you see, whatever is that motive that makes these young people excel and break records, it'll bring tears to your eyes as you see the symmetry and the grace and the beauty of a human body performing these intricate feats and gymnastics and so on happens to be a favorite of mine as well as basketball and swimming and a lot of others the track and field events and it will absolutely just enthrall you I'm a real slob I can go to a concert and great music will make me cry my wife and I saw Ann Murray twice in person once over in uh, Tahoe we went to a dinner theater there we had a booth all by ourselves the choice booth in the whole place she was in a long white gown did every one of my favorite songs I sat there we'd had a couple glasses of wine knife steak just the two of us we held hands listen to Ann Murray with the lights down dark and she sang I needed you you ought to listen to the words of that song they're almost spiritual I was lost and you brought me home again and so on and you uh, you know, gave me the strength to stand on my own again. You put me high on a pedestal so high I could almost see eternity. Somehow you needed me. I sat there and cried. I'm, a, I'm just a slob when I get in situations like that that is moving. Now here's a woman with a quality of voice that is just right in that middle range where she can all, I can sing as high as she can sing low. And just absolutely a beautiful voice, beautiful talent. I wonder, is all of that vanity? It, when I see people trying to excel, when I see people paint or make their own clothing or work with their hands to produce something of which they're rightfully proud, is that just vanity? Is it empty, uselessness? Are all sports and competition absolutely of the devil? Is it strife and competition? You know, you'll find that most of those athletes will tell you in the interviews, you hear this over and over and over again, that they're trying to beat themselves. They're trying to do the best they can. They'll, they'll stick that microphone, well, were you thinking about winning? No, I was just thinking about doing the best I could. You'll hear them say that over and over and over again. It's themselves they're trying to challenge. They're trying to beat what they did before. What's wrong with that? Of some try, somebody trying to do the best he possibly can. That one verse we want to catch is verse 25. Every man that strives for the mastery, or in the games, as it says here, and literally, that is what uh, Paul was referring to. You made that point, didn't you, Ian? That, this, that Paul was writing about the Olympic Games. The literal Greek here is every man that strives in the games. Here is a scripture that is certainly apropos, right, where all the same old Olympic Games are going on in the United States of America all these centuries later, never going on when Paul was writing this, no doubt. Maybe the games were underway when he wrote this to the Corinthian church. Who knows? Maybe he knew about it and heard some news about the games over there. Every man that strives in the games, as the margin says, not for the master, but in the games, is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run. He's not putting down running. He's just showing the difference, the contrast. A wreath of olive leaves that finally is gone. You can't even keep it very long. And all eternal life and salvation, as was brought out. Not as uncertainly, I fight, not as one that beats the air, not shadow boxing, but
but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I should have preached to others, I myself should be rejected or should have lost out on the crown or lost the prize or come in second or third. Let's contrast that with 2 Timothy 4.7 right quickly. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. Here the Apostle Paul says, and I quote, I have fought. Now he said, so fight I. And he said it's a daily fight. Now he's at the end of his life and he said, I fought in the past tense. I have fought a good fight. Does that sound like a man who is displeased with himself? Who is saying, what a wretch I am. I abhor myself. I'm disgusted with myself. Paul says, in the autumn of his life, in the quietude and the certainty of approaching death. Yes, I missed it a few times. I messed up. But you know, I fought a pretty good fight. I fought a good fight. I like that. That gives me some courage. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Hey, I've got it made, Paul said, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. He knew. This is not a man who went through his life hating himself. The emphasis that has been put on Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 9, other scriptures, O wretched man that I am, of trying to encourage God's people to feel beaten down, inferior, afflicted, dumb, stupid, like dogs, chickens, pigs, and cows, that wants to subject women to look like, you know, a washed out, lifeless, uh, whatever. I mean, if they've got poor skin, and let's face it, many, many women do, or the hair is not quite as full or luxurious as they wish it was, they are constrained not to touch themselves in any way to dress and groom and keep themselves looking like they were somewhat pleased with themselves. You know, hey, I'm, I'm a person. Uh, here I am. I'm a human being. I like myself. I have some self-worth. I've got a few things I can say to you. I can teach you. I've been up the creek and over the hill a time or two. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me looking like I'm a little pleased with who I am. I don't know why you would deprive that of a human being. You take away from a person their self-respect, and you have destroyed that person. You leave a person with no self-respect whatsoever, and you have an empty-headed zombie. You don't have an individual of whom your God in heaven is proud that says, that's my son, that's my daughter. You've just got some non-entity, some thing like a, an amoeba running around, faceless and mindless, with no will, and no special, separate, individual, unique personality. God wants us to develop our own unique personality. And he gives us, remember, according to our own natural, several ability. The parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds tells us that he gives according to our natural, individual, several ability. And he wants you to overcome to that degree. Paul knew he had it made. So balance that. He said, so fight I, lest I should be found to cast away. But he wasn't. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Therefore is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. 
couple of scriptures right quickly. Luke 10 and verse 25. And one other we can refer to in concluding here. Luke 10 and verse 25. Following this scripture, Jesus gave a rather lengthy analogy. A, a certain lawyer came and tempted him and said, Master, what shall I do to in inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And he is actually doing what? He's summarizing the law right out of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the summary of the Ten Commandments after Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter. You love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I've emphasized that scripture in the past. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you, if you ever did that, your neighbor would be overwhelmed. Your neighbor would be dumbfounded to find that they lived next door to somebody that loved them that much. And that's the kind of love that Almighty God says we are to have toward our neighbors. Isn't it interesting that he goes no further? Now the next part of the subject is, who is your neighbor? And he said to the lawyer, you've answered correctly, this do and you will live. But he, willing to justify himself, left himself wide open. And then, of course, we find out that he's probably a racist. He said, all right, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. You know, Jer Jericho's down toward the Dead Sea. Stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Nearly killed him and robbed him and stripped him, left him lying there naked and bleeding. And by chance there came down a certain priest, one of the ministers, one of the righteous guys. When he saw him, he just walked around on the other side. I've seen people who live their lives that way. People that are spiritually, mentally, and emotionally lying by the side of the road, wretched, bleeding, and wounded. And the minister will walk right on by. And that's what he's really getting at, isn't it? He walked by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, now you know Samaritans were the pariahs of that society. They were the untouchable. They were swarthy black people. They were just hated by the Jews. They were Gentiles and they weren't liked at all. As he journeyed, came where he was, when he saw him he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pennies and gave them to the host and said, You watch over him, and whatever he spends more than this, when I come back, I'll pay you for it. He put him up and made sure he was going to stay taken care of for some time to come. Now, which of these three, do you think, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Oh, he was trapped. He couldn't say anything else. And then said Jesus, Go and do thou likewise. If you see a church where every time the church throws a party, it only honors itself or its own leadership, where every time there is something wonderful to say about some accomplishment, it is only directed in one channel toward the leader, the human leader of that church, you may want to begin to wonder about some of these analogies in the Bible that we see about people out here in the world who have their Thanksgiving suppers for Skid Row people who make up Christmas packages for the poor, 
People who have been known to drop coins into the Salvation Army box, the guy tinkling the bell, in spite of the fact they're in God's church. People who mobilize local churches with blankets and hot chocolate and medical supplies and provide beds and call down to the emergency center and say, I can take in a couple of couples. We can help them. We got some sleeping bags. We go camping every year. We can even let some folks sleep on our floor. Better yet, we'll sleep on the floor and let them have our bed. I remember many, many years ago when we were trying to exercise eminent domain, there was a little old black lady that lived in a house. She was only about a block and a half through from where I lived, and all the kids got to calling her the bald eagle because the poor thing had nothing more to do with her life than sit on her front porch and watch everyone go by. So they said she's got the eagle eye, but she was a black lady and she was also bald. So the kids in the college, Christian kids, thought it was cute to call her the bald eagle. Well, I went to my father one time and I said, you know, Dad, we could do more to win the approval of Pasadena, California than anything I know of if we would take some of the money that comes in here and just build and maintain a home here somewhere for that lady and others like her, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, let some of our own deaconesses and women and some of the others help care for them and just maintain it and operate it. Some of these people that are actually being dispossessed of their own homes when the college expands let them move into a nice apartment, and we'll just maintain it on behalf of the church for the local community. Well, that never got through, of course. That didn't get approved. That got lost in the shuffle somewhere. To this day, I still think it was good advice.